recorded on Wednesday, December 4th, 2013, in St. Louis, Missouri. This Agile Life, episode 28, The Incentive is the Freedom. Welcome to This Agile Life, a podcast about what it's like to be agile in the real world. Hello, everyone. I'm the host of This Agile Life, John Sextro. Joining me today, I have two wonderful co-hosts, Dr. Lee McCauley. Hey, how's it going, guys? It's going very great, Lee. How is it going for you? It's going fantastic. I'm enjoying life. That's wonderful, and I'm very happy to have you here on the show tonight. Thanks. Me too. Lee, joining us tonight is Amos King. I feel like I just saw you last night, John. That's amazing. I feel the <laughs> same way. I'm uh, having a, a great day today. Uh, it's always fantastic being a software developer. How about you, John? What are you doing today? Uh, I wish I was a software developer some days. I'm busy uh, coaching, being a coach. Good. Hey, we need those positions, too. Sometimes you just want to be the second baseman. We're missing our architect. We are missing Jason Tice. Sometimes we don't always need Jason. <laughs> Not that we don't love Jason. You mean we don't need an architect? We do need an agile coach, though. I uh, didn't say those things. <laughs> don't put words. <laughs> Amos, don't put develop. words in my mouth. Oh, come on. Okay. Uh, that's what he gets for not being here. Yeah, well, that's, that's part of the penalty of not being on the show is you have to take extra abuse. He's, he's probably out doing Agile Pilates or something. But, uh, one time we're going to have to get Lee and Jason on at the same time so we can talk about personal Kanban. Yeah, I think that would be fun. Yeah. That would be fantastic. Well, that's not tonight. Tonight's topic is what is too big for an Agile team? And uh, I think we've all experienced this before, at least in varying, varying levels and varying degrees. And the big question is, what's too big? And then if something does get too big, if a team or a project gets too big, what do you do about it? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in the Tice answer. You should read Scaled Agile Framework because it has prescri- prescriptive guidance. Oh, my gosh. Too big. Oh, my gosh. I think I just heard Tice come out of your, your mouth, Angus. <laughs> I could have I could have channeled them in the same way, but you beat me to it. <laughs> so you okay. want to you want to give us some prescriptive guidance from Safe Amos? Uh, no, I don't know enough about Safe. I've never been safe in my life. I bear back Agile. <laughs> oh, oh, that's, that's so wrong. That is wrong. <laughs> we can just edit that out, <laughs> or we can make it the show title. Well, you can, so a team can be too big, but that's a very subjective thing. That's not just enough to say, oh, if it goes over seven team members, it's too big. Or if it goes over nine team members or 15 team members, right? I mean, too big is like a, it's like a a feel. There's not an exact science or definition to it. It's like that old saying that I don't know how to, I don't know how to define porn, but I know when I see it. Right, right. So, so porn and barebacking, we're all over the place here. Maybe we should start over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not real sure. Um, so, so I have to say that, that um, I, what I really would like to explore on this is not just whether there is such a thing as a team that's too big, but how, 
Um, at what point, what are the things that too big of a team causes as far as pain in, in a team so that you start to say, okay, something is wrong? And is it really the size of the team or is it something else that just seems to be exacerbated by the size of a team? And, and some people just get it confused with the size of a team. I don't know the answer to that. And I would love to hear what you guys have to think about. I think as, as teams get larger, it gets a lot harder to uh, make sure that you're communicating everything to everyone all the time. Whenever you have a small team four to six people who are working super tight and close every day and they're pair switching and, and discussing all their moves along the way, there's a lot of communication that just organically happens. If you get a team of 30 people, there, it takes a lot longer before everyone on the team has seen everyone else on the team and had a good discussion with them outside of unless you have meetings or things like that. So uh, I think that that is when the feel of a team being too big starts to happen is when communication starts to break down. But are there I, I'm interested in how we can improve the communication so that that size happens later. So I can instead of happening at let's say eight people it starts happening at 18 people or 30 people right i mean i've noticed online the biggest complaint about having too big a team is that the stand-ups start lasting way too long um which i think is probably true but is that is that more about the number of stories you've got in flight um yeah just kind of curious well so amos when you were saying the communication gets hard harder to do communication is harder to accomplish that sort of dovetails with what lee was saying about the stand-ups getting too long those both seem like uh similar symptoms right what are some I, other things that i think i think one causes the other if you're if your stand-ups are going too long uh then you you start to get people checking out it's or more likely to happen a long stand-up is a symptom of communication is becoming more difficult because you can't knock your stand-up out in less than 15 minutes. But I wanted to ask you, because you were talking about communication as a key indicator, what are some other um, manifestations of communication being too hard that you've experienced maybe on a team? People, so stories start happening where uh, you know, on a team of six where a story might be discussed and people understand is things start to getting in the code that not everybody knows about or stories are completed and then turned around and said, that is not anywhere near what we were, we discussed in X meeting or stand up or whatever. Um, so those things start to happen is that features get put in or, or problems ha occur or happen on the team that not everybody is aware of. If you pair switch a lot, it would seem like that's one of that could be a, a that could be a method that could be an approach for trying to increase communication is by forcing it by having people pair switch frequently. That would that would seem to that would seem to prevent things from happening where oh I didn't know we were doing this. Well, if you pair switch and you're rotating around a lot through the team, you'll you're less likely to experience that, don't you think? So, well, you have a team of 40 people, right? So let's say you pair switch every hour and you have absolutely no meeting. It's all working on pairing. That's an entire week before you've worked with everyone on the team. Yes. And 
with meetings and and people being tasked to do other things because we know even whenever you're in an environment where it's a hundred percent pairing, it doesn't really mean you're pairing a hundred percent of the time because you're doing other things. You're you're having discussions with the whiteboard, you're going to other meetings, you're talking to the boss or or a future customer or whatever. Um so you, you don't actually get that. So it could be if at a, at a team of 40 people, if you're switching every hour, it'll be a good two weeks probably before you've worked with everybody. And that's only if you're diligent that you're not working on the same thing and not working with the same people until you've gone through everybody. Taking my hypothetical team of 40 people as an example, uh, that 40 is, is to me way too big for a single group to be working on. Uh, the same stuff all the time. That's just unwieldy. So this hypothetical group. So why of, is that? Why is that, John? Yeah. I mean, uh, why, why is it that you just kind of jump to that? Uh, I think I agree with you. I'm just trying to kind of playing devil's advocate of what is it about that team that says that's too big for be for all those people to be working on the same thing. Is it the, the communication like, like Amos was saying that, that those people just can't, just can't communicate enough. It's, it just becomes too unwieldy and takes too much time. Is that really what the issue is? I think there are multiple facets to it. I'll start with some technical reasons. And one is that it's incredibly difficult to have uh, a group that size working on the same parts of a code base. So you have to figure some way out so that you can Divvy, divvy things up, divvy, divvy the team up in a way that can allow a few people over here to focus on some stuff and um, to avoid humongous, hairy merge conflicts. Um, but then there is there are communication problems. Uh, there's also problems with fractions occurring where certain people only talk to certain other people, and there's this click sort of thing like in high school that starts to happen. So you get um, clicky silos of knowledge. Yes, you do. Like groups of four or five people who know one part of the thing. And then when one of them leaves your company, because it's normal, you have other ones start to follow them. Yeah. What I would, what I would really like to do is have not have a team that big if it's possible, because you're either going to have naturally occurring clicks or you're going to have planned and forced clicks that you have to you implement by by fracturing the team up into smaller teams so that the smaller teams can try to behave and act small um, as opposed to the having a one humongous team of 30 or 40 or 50 people using the the a feature team approach where you take individual teams and uh, you, you treat them essentially, if you can imagine a team of, say, seven people, and you might allow, let's say, eight people for round numbers, and we'll pair them up. So we'll say four, peep, four pairs are going to work on four features. You take a very large team and fracture them up into feature teams, and then those feature teams work on individual features as if they were an individual on a smaller team working on a feature. So you allow that very large group of people to behave and exhibit the behavior of a smaller team. Hmm. I think that's an interesting way to approach it. Uh, I would 
I would love to see to experience that to see uh, if, if it would work as well as it sounds like it might. I don't know if you would love to experience it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I live it. Fair point. I, I live yeah. it, and it's I live it, and it's not it's not the it's not ideal, but it's better than some other options. I I, I think it gets harder the larger the team gets. Um, for teams to come to agreements and compromises and that affects that that communication ability and and the ability of how to go uh there's for a long time i've said that in my experience it's been that uh the number of people on a team is that's how many retros or iterations that you have to have before that team really starts to gel uh because you start to get actual feedback at that point i've heard other people talk about that and uh, saying that they they've noticed that I don't know if there are any studies out there or anything on that, but so that if that is actually true, then that means if you have forty people, you need to have forty retros before people start to gel. And that if someone leaves and comes in, you've just extended it by another another retro. So let's say you have a retro every week. That's forty weeks. You're you're getting close to a year right before you can have a team start to gel there. And that that makes it really difficult. I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure if I if I totally agree with that. Um, just because I'm not sure what your definition of jelly is. So um, what I found in some of my most recent projects is that we we started up a, a greenfield project uh, uh, back in April, and uh, we started with a team of about six, and it was pretty much immediate that we had uh, we had agreement as to what our what our daily habits were going to be and how our process was going to run and and uh, as as new people were added on a few months later i mean there there was essentially no ramp up time from a team gelling from an idea of communication um so i'm not sure if that was a fluke or it just happened to be the personalities involved um but i can't say to say that it's a foregone conclusion that that rule holds um, I guess my definition of gelling is that the team has started to recognize where their failures are and started to make improvements and they're able to uh, actively, um, I don't know, where judge themselves and, and find out where they need to go. So I think just because day one you have a plan and an agreement doesn't necessarily mean that you're able to uh, be open and honest about changes like really day one you can't say what you've done wrong in the past right it's gonna right. you have to have some paths right? unless and this might be the case with lee and i'd like to ask him did the people have any f- prior knowledge of each other's capabilities skills personalities etc some yes so they had some of the people had worked on teams together not a lot but uh, a few um and and different combinations it wasn't just the same group so i had worked with uh, a couple of the other people, um, those couple had worked with a couple others. So between the between the group, we had knowledge of each other, just not all together. There's and the then, there's the whole storming, forming, norming, performing thing that that goes on with teams, right? And um, it, it certainly I agree with what with what Amos said, and I think it's an interesting correlation that you made, Amos, between the number of members of a team 
and relating that to how long it takes, how many retros you have to go through before the team really starts to gel. And I, I would uh, venture to say that that hypothesis might be fairly accurate. I, I started kind of recognizing that toward the uh, beginning of 2008, and I started kind of tracking it on every team that I was on, not, not necessarily on paper, but just watching to see in retros when we started having big strides of improvement and people learning to communicate better. And it seems like about that retro, maybe one or two after or before, we're, we're like the, the sweet spot of, hey, now we've actually made real change. But, you know, that's subjective on my part, too. I'm the only one judging what real change is. Yeah. Communication. We talk so much about communication on this uh, podcast, Amos, and you especially. But in this particular case, communication is maybe the key indicator to being too big. I can I can certainly testify to the fact that uh, one of our number one topics at Retrospectives on large teams is the problem with communication. And that the number one topic on small teams too usually. Well, is it? Is it? Has uh, that been your experience? Uh, until the team gels, yeah. <laughs> until the team say. gels, I, I would say that's a that is kind of my key indicator of when a team is gelling. There are f- actual physical barriers to communication on very large teams. It's extremely hard to sit a large team of people in close proximity to each other. And if you are able to do that, there's a great deal of noise that a large team of people create. Especially if you're pairing. That's true. And almost like regardless of if you're pairing or not, there's just uh, there's more chances for conversations to break out and ideas to come up and arguments to start. Whereas smaller groups, there's overall that was, less. That was also good until that arguments to start part came out. I thought, oh, you're getting that. This is all good stuff, right? More right, more personalities well, to conflict with. So, so there's a there's two sides of that coin, right? So you were saying. Lots of lots of ideas coming out with lots of people, but then nobody can. If you got too many ideas, I, I find this with uh, my uh, my Lego robotics team. Of course, that's a bunch of ten year olds, but they have all these great ideas, and, every, and nobody can can decide on what idea is the best, right? And so I see that sometimes in in large teams as well. Is that somebody's got an idea and somebody else has an idea, and they both are confident that. Uh, their idea is is the one, and there might even be a third or a fourth idea, and nobody is middle enough to say, "Yeah, that's the right idea," and, or or really argue one side or the other. And in some cases, the this in the case of like a turnaround, the turnaround just keeps going until someone people just get tired and say, "Fine, whatever," or nothing gets decided, and it just kind of breaks up. Uh, I'm going to name drop here. That's the Heath Porter's version of arguing. Oh, really? (laughs) Just do it till everybody else gets tired. (laughs) I think Lee on a very large team, there's less, there's less of a desire or less of the potential for a person to, uh, to step, put themselves forward and, and, and take ownership of making a decision because there's more people to look around at and be like, Oh, Amos will make that decision. Oh, Lee will make that decision. 
and I can just sit back and, and not make that decision. So I think when you're, when you're in a very large group, there's less incentive and less need for you to, to take ownership of something. Uh, I, I like that you said ownership there. I think it is a lack of, of feeling like you are part of the project. You feel like such a much smaller percentage of the project that it's easy for you to sit back. And hey, almost all of us like to take the simple path. So the simple path is to sit back, shut up, and listen. That's, that's an interesting point, because I think that one of the keys to, uh, to having a really well-functioning Agile team is that everybody has to take ownership um, and, feel, and feel important in the, in the process. And that um, in a lot of cases, uh, when you have someone that, let's take another example that, that has the same result. If you have somebody that knows they're a short timer, right, they're only going to be on the project for two weeks or something like that. They don't really take ownership. They don't really buy into anything. And, and I, I think you're right, John. The same thing happens with a large team. Um, and, uh, and that can be, it's, it's often just all the small things. It's not, there's no one silver bullet for a, for a good agile team. It's all, it's all these little things that by themselves, any one of them, nobody would think was important, but all of them together makes, makes a big difference. And I think that's one of those things that people feeling like they have ownership is, is one of those small things that makes a big difference. Here's another thing I'd like to point out. And I'd like to tell you a, a brief story about a young John Sextro that was just starting out in IT in a, in a, in a small, big company. It was like a, a, it was like a subsidiary, a small branch of a large company in town here. And there was, there Hold was, John, let me get my blankie, my teddy bear. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll wait for you to get the blanket and teddy bear. Okay. And you're back. Okay, good. Great. So he, this was a small company. There were, everybody knew everybody and, um, there, there were departments, you know, there was accounts receivable, there was accounts payable, there was IT, but there was a lot of people that knew a lot of the different parts of the business. And even in like IT, you know, it was five or six guys and, and, and a couple of women and there wasn't, so there weren't sub departments in IT. You know, if you were a developer, sometimes you pulled, you pulled network cable, sometimes you installed a phone, sometimes uh, you set up somebody's network credentials, etc. And I think the bigger team, and that was great. And that was great for me because that really allowed me to learn a whole bunch of stuff and allowed me to um, play different roles, do different things, learn about different parts of the business that I don't think I would have been able to do if I would have been a part of a very large corporate organization because I would have a job and a job title and a cubicle and, um, you know, a small checklist of things that I was expected to do. And I'd be a very small cog in an enormously big machine. So if you scale that down to a rather large team, it's been my experience and observations that this happens to people on teams. Amos, you started to allude to the fact where people become experts in parts of the system, or maybe they become experts in certain technologies that are used in certain parts of the system. And then they become good at that stuff. And so people rely on them and depend on them. And then you get all of these, again, these fractures in the team where Joe only does 
this particular or he knows only this particular aspect of something. And so he gets all of that work and nobody else steps up and takes that work on. And then people start to become comfortable with that and look for ways to get pigeonholed into things. Well, and, and I, I believe that uh, sometimes you get people that wouldn't normally be in that position getting into that position because they need to stand out in the team of 40. So, you know, some people are sitting back and letting everyone else make the decisions where after that guy makes the decision and he stands out a little bit, he wants to keep standing out and keep staying out. And that's why he becomes the knowledge silo. And, and why he gets a group of people that might be a knowledge silo around him a little bit as they're trying to step up there. So that's just, I think that's a leadership stepping up, but then due to a failure moving forward, it's not just a leadership that continues and everybody grows. It's a leadership that stops right there. If, if I'm understanding correctly, Amos, you're saying that by an, an individual stepping up and making decisions, that that makes it okay for more people to kind of step back and not make those decisions? Uh, I, yeah, I, I think so. Um, and, I, and I think that the knowledge silo is caused by some people stepping forward and not everybody stepping forward. On a small team, it's really, it's really uh, not hard to notice whenever it's just one person that does something all the time. On a bigger team, you get one knowledge silo. There's usually a few people that gather around that knowledge silo and they glean off a little bit so that it's easier to hide the fact that there's a knowledge silo a little bit. I think the key point that you made there, Amos, is the fact that it's the rest of the people not having the same willingness and desire to step forward and be the leader. Lee, you talked, you were talking a little bit about this, where it's the self-organization thing that happens. And on larger teams, because certain people step up and take the role of being a leader or taking on the tougher jobs, there's le- less self-organization because there's those other people that are willing to kind of sit back and let those other people take those things on. And there's um, less pressure for the whole team to get involved and do those things. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure how to fix that from a team perspective. And on a small team, I think you probably can fix it a bit because you can directly address the individual's um, uh, issues and maybe talk about those. But if you've, if you've got, um, there will always be personalities that just don't want to be leaders. Um, they don't necessarily feel comfortable, especially in a large group. And so, uh, I mean, let's be honest, a lot of the people that are in our industry are introverts. Which, by the way, is a very powerful thing. If you've read the uh, a recent book, I'll have to put that in, uh, in the show notes or something. Um, the the book on uh, the power of introverts. I'm hard to find it. The um, but point is, is that there are a lot of people in our industry who are going to be introverts and aren't going to be willing to, to step up. And I don't know how you fix that from when when we have such a large population of people like that. It's easier to be anonymous in a large group, and it's more difficult to be anonymous in a small group. But So by having smaller groups of people, there's less anonymity, and there's more of a need for the unusual hero to emerge. Not hero, because that's a, I know that's a negative term in Agile, but the, the unusual or the unexpected leader 
a step forward. Sometimes, yes, it's that people are introverted, but it's also sometimes the fact that there are other extroverts around that never give the introvert the chance to be the leader. Well, and, and on a small team, even if you're introverted, all the decisions made on that team feel like they're going to affect you a lot more. So you're, you're also more likely to stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, that decision that you're making may not be the greatest, even if you are an introvert. Where on the big team, you either say, eh, it'd probably not affect me anyway because they're in that other knowledge silo, uh, or you, you assume someone else will step up and take it. And if nobody else is stepping up and saying, hey, that that decision isn't good, then you don't want to say anything because you're afraid that you're the only person in the room thinking that and you could be wrong. Yeah. You know, I want to ask you guys a question about teams being too big. Why do you think a team needs to ever become too big? And and maybe that's not a great way to phrase the question, but why maybe the better question is why do we ever let or create teams that are quote unquote too big? Because not every manager has read the mythical man month and they want their project to move faster. Okay. That's certainly one reason, but why do we why don't we prevent that from happening? As developers or as managers? Both. Either. Uh, I, I think that many developers are either too afraid to stand up or haven't been in the situation where they've seen the growing team cause a problem. Uh, or they're in the minority. And, and as managers that haven't necessarily led a lot of software teams or, or understood that, they, they feel like if, you know, if I have to build a house and I just get more builders, I can, I can build four walls a lot faster. Okay, and, what, about, and, what about building something at the scale of uh, a mobile phone operating system, which I'm certain needs you know, hundreds maybe of developers? So wh- why are you certain that it needs hundreds? Oh, I'm just certain that it has to be 100. <laughs> I'm just positive, Amos. It has to be. There's so much work to do, and we need to get it done this year. Right. And, and, you know, when you're, uh, so that's a big system. I also think that, um, you have more defined roles there. Like as far as the software goes, you might actually be able to split it up into, into good teams for that kind of example. But I, I, I don't know that I'm certain that it takes a hundred developers to create an operating system for a phone in a year. Well, here, here's something that amazes me is, the the way that um the way that linux evolved and was developed was completely open source initially right or right. or uh, publicly you know a lot of public committers and i mean there was like no real organization to that sort of a thing and that was a huge effort hundreds of developers contributing why don't more people take the model of Open source development. Oh, that's a that's a big question <laughs> uh, with a lot of implication. Um, fear of of someone else taking your code and and moving forward and and uh, and selling it and putting you out of business. Okay, I think but, is a well, big one. But hold but, on, because I'm not saying that you make your 
that you actually make the software you're creating open source. What I'm saying is that you use an approach of, I will allow people to have some amount of autonomy and decide on what they want to work on and commit to getting that done without schedules and, and, uh, and project managers and people managers and cross-functional leaders and that sort of thing. That takes a tremendous amount of trust in, in your people. I mean, from a, from a CEO's or a, or a manager of a large group's perspective, I mean, if they don't have any way to make sure that, that their project is, is progressing in some way, um, and in a direction and with the priorities that they want, then they don't feel like they've got a job or, and they don't really feel like it, not necessarily that they need one. Um, but, uh, but I don't, they don't feel like it's going to get done the way that they, their vision, uh, sees it getting done. Well, and, and they have to be able to let go of that control. Like nobody becomes president of the United States because they want to say, Hey, let Congress do everything. Right. They want to be able to to have power a little bit. There's some part of of that person that wants to have power. And by giving up that control, they're they, they're giving up that sense of power. Right. That's definitely true. There's a it's a political I'm sure it's there's po- a lot of politics, a lot of power playing politics sort of in there. Lee, you you said one of the the buzzwords, one of the catchphrases for the podcast, and that's trust. So everyone out there has to take a drink. Um, (laughs) Oh, but I mean, Herman, the word of the day. Yeah, it comes back very often to trust. Okay, so managers can't trust. Uh, One of the reasons why you said they can't trust is because they don't know that progress is being made. But if we used an agile approach. And we're doing regular demos, uh, e- even at this scale. I kind of take away the excuse that there's no way to show progress, right? I, I think if you if you use a continuous flow model, uh, a Kanban priority queue that people pull from, and things go right out the door, that that it the bigger the it doesn't hurt a big team as near as much as if you're trying to do fixed scope iterations where this is exactly what we're doing right now. Where if you have that priority queue, then anybody can look at the top of that queue and see what's going on. They can see what's next. And I think that that works with the open source model is here's our list of priorities in order. Let's just start tackling them. And then you might get less knowledge silos. You get little teams that form and break out of the big team. And hopefully people move around a lot. But you also have to encourage that movement. Like maybe you, maybe if you're doing pairing, you can't pair with the same person until you've paired with everybody. But then, but then, so here's, here's something that, uh, that if Tice were here, we'll do a little channeling again. If Tice were here, I, I think there would be some, some discussion of the fact that some process is necessary. For example, if, if I want to make sure that I'm not pairing with somebody again, this actually came up, by the way, in, a, in my team recently. Um, the suggestion was made, oh, let's use the pairing pyramid. And everybody groaned. I was like, oh, because, because they didn't feel like the, uh, the process was necessary to accomplish what they, what they needed to accomplish. And are, so are you sure it was that or was it that they wanted to pair with this other guy more than everybody else? I don't think so. I think they felt like they, were, they had a fairly good process anyway. And 
for switching pairs. And I think the pyramid sucked. <laughs> uh, I, I've had that same problem with the pyramid. The best uh, pair switching that I've had where everybody gets to pair with everybody uh, seems to be that everyone sits down in the morning and every hour you get up and rotate one clockwise or counterclockwise. Right. And then and then the next time the other person does that in the opposite direction so that you usually pair with most of the team, you might miss a person or two. And that seems to work pretty well. Now, if you can do that where it's not sitting in a room, like you just say, okay, here's, here's the pairings for the day. Um, and you have some kind of, maybe some software that'll just do it. That might not be bad, but it, it was, software it was, that can do it. That, that sounds like <laughs> an Amos, an Amos solution for everything. Well, it's, it's just, it's less laborious than trying to go out and draw a line on this pyramid and see who I've paired with and who I haven't like, let's just rotate one direction right. or the other. Uh, absolutely. We've, we, that's exactly what we were doing at the time that someone suggested the, the pyramid, the pyramid. And, uh, and I think that's why people were groaning is uh, my point, my point, but uh, besides using, besides going off on a tangent on the pyramid, um, the, uh, my point was that, for the most part, it's been a struggle throughout my career that this balance between process and and team uh, self-organization and project self-organization. And so what John had, was suggesting is basically the ultimate in, uh, in self-organizing software, right, um, from, a, from a project standpoint, which is let everybody do whatever they want to do and get things done when they want to get it done. And you know, everybody's working on stuff. So that must be, that's, that's going to definitely, uh, uh, result in good software. And again, I, I actually agree with that. I think that, that that's uh, a worthy, um, uh, tack to take. Although I would def, I definitely see the fear from a manager's perspective of, I'm not, I don't believe that that will accomplish. I, that that's not necessarily going to get my software done. Um, because, because I have, I've lost control of that. Um, I, I think that's where they, uh, that all of us need to learn to be able to take risks. I think the big problem there is that the manager doesn't want to answer to his boss. If this crazy idea of just letting people go and get the, and get, give them a list of priorities and just let them get it done and not push them will, will actually work. They don't want to turn around and say, well, uh, yeah, I know we didn't get this done. Uh, it, yeah, yes, I did let them not do. Uh, I, I, I just didn't tell them what to do. I just let it go to see what would happen. Nobody wants to have that conversation because of the societal views of of how, what would happen if that that was going on. Um, maybe is is that called communist programming? <laughs> if you do it that way, like everybody just does what they can do in order to get everything done. Hey, uh, maybe I don't think so though. Let's not call it that. <laughs> but I mean, do you, do you see where I'm coming from as a manager? It, if it doesn't work, it's hard to justify. Oh, let me tell you something. If, if you talk to people, I'm talking about sane people. They're, they're not managers. Well, they're not you. <laughs> they are going to absolutely think that you are bat shit crazy if you propose something like that. But here's works for so many companies. Here, let me let me say it. 
Oh, Here's yeah. the amazing thing. You didn't let me get to the punchline. The amazing oh. thing is it freaking works. How can that, how could that possibly be? How could it possibly be that I can cut loose 50 developers on a code base and they could somehow magically self-organize like ants and figure out how to build some kick-ass software? So I got to tell you once guys, we feel freedom, we just want to keep it going. I, I got to tell you guys about a, uh, a, a demonstration that I saw uh, years and years ago when I was doing a lot of uh, research into cognitive psychology and, uh, and computer AI. Um, and this was a, a demonstration of self-organization. So imagine an auditorium filled with people and each person in that auditorium has a big card that ha- has a, a bright green side and a bright orange side. And in front of them, played on the, the big monitor or, or uh, the screen in front of them, large, is a flight simulation. And their, their task is to, um, to take a plane that's in flight and land it. But all they can do is certain parts of the, certain parts of the uh, auditorium um, Certain parts of the auditorium uh, are assigned to the the yaw, uh, or you know, before before I screw up one of these terms, um, uh, the up and down motion of the plane, or right. the side to side motion of the plane. Right. Um, and and it, whether which way they want to go is just they just hold up their card, and then there's there's a a, a camera that is checking to see which in that area what's the most uh, color it sees, and then it makes the plane go in that direction and in that way that, that the majority of the people said. And as a group, they actually were able to, to land this plane. They, they had to make a second round, um, but, uh, but they were, were able to, uh, to land this plane. And so the first time, they didn't quite get it right on. And as a group, they took the plane back up, turned it around the, the airfield, and took a second shot and landed a plane without anyone being in control of the plane. No pilot. That's amazing. Is, is that something that's like on YouTube where we could... Yeah, can I find this study? I'm, I'm already searching for it. I mean, that I just... Know. I mean, I haven't, seen, I haven't seen the video. This was a video that I had, that I had seen back in uh, 2000. So I have no idea if it's still around or, or how, we would, how you'd find it. What what would be even more amazing to me is if there was no leader that emerged, that if the people just communicated amongst each other, right? And and there were no real leaders, that everybody just sort of figured it out for themselves and was talking to the people within their immediate vicinity, but there wasn't someone like, okay, you guys do this and you guys do that sort of thing, because that to me is having a leader on a team and um, isn't as much self-organizing as it is somebody directing everyone, right? And I'm guessing, based on what you, how you describe this, Lee, that the people all kind of just figured this out. Oh, yeah, there was, there was no talking between them. They couldn't the, talk? I, they couldn't talk between them. All they could do is lift up their particular card as the direction they think the, the plane ought to go. That's amazing. I mean, that, I thought so, too. It, it's amazing to me as well. I mean, I, me- I mentioned ants, right? And there's a lot of stuff ants can do. I mean, ants can strip an elephant down to its bone, and they can move 
tons of leaves and, and grass. And, in, and, and individually, they're idiots. There's no talking, I guess, right? I don't know if they, ants can all, talk. Uh, they, they use pheromones. Me but too. It's weird because uh, they, they can take, like, a, a dead ant makes a certain smell. It produces a certain chemical, and they can spray a live ant with it. And other ants will pick it up and carry it off to, like, the ant graveyard where they throw the dead ants. And they'll toss it away, and he'll follow them back, and they'll pick him up again and carry him and throw him back. Uh, it's, I, I've read a lot about ants, too. It's very interesting how that all plays out. They're basically a finite state automata that um, can, can, it just follows this path over and over and over and over. I mean, it just amazes me that that sort of thing can happen without there being some sort of person standing there with the whip in the chair, cracking the whip and telling people, do this, do that. I mean, it's amazing what people can, can accomplish when they're, when they're left to self-organize. And, and the, the whole reason I asked, why do we have to, you know, why do, why do we allow things to get too big is to explore this and talk about the places where people are able to do this sort of stuff at a very large scale without getting and without getting in the way and allowing egos or whatever it is that motivates these people to, um, to try and take things over and inject themselves into them. It was interesting. Nate Mackey had a pick uh, the other uh, on a on a previous episode, or I think it was Steam and their employee handbook says that the Val- valve valve. Thank you, Amos. Says that the guy that started the company is is uh something like he's no he's he's nope. mo- more not your boss than anyone else. Right. Nobody's nobody's your boss, and the guy who started the company is more not your boss than anyone. That's the sort of attitude I think that we need in these big companies is where everybody says, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm really not your boss. You know, you need to, you need to do this yourself. Do you think that there are limitations that these companies somehow have superhero developers who are just all MIT graduates and rock stars and PhDs and, and, uh, really super type A's and that's why they, they succeed? Or do they have normal people working there? Workaday Joes. I think they have some normal people there. It's it's pretty. It, it's amazing what people can do when you empower them to make their own. It, they they take ownership that we always talk about. People needing it's take taking ownership. Whenever you're empowered to make your own decisions, that's the only thing you can do is take ownership or get fired. I think it also has to do with uh, expectations, right? So uh, so my wife is a teacher. She is constantly talking about the fact that um, her students live up to whatever whatever expectations she sets for them, for the most part, um, with with minor exceptions. Um, so I think the same thing goes with people in general. If you're in a particular situation and there's no particular expectation for you to perform uh, uh, well or to to self organize or to to manage yourself, um, then you won't, right? You won't expend the extra, extra energy and you won't feel like you, you need to because no one's expecting it of you. Um, but if you're in a situation or a company like, like Valve obviously is that you can, you can uh, they expect you to do that kind of stuff, then I think normal, normal in air quotes, people uh, will, 
will exceed the expectations that sometimes they even have for themselves. Uh, you said key words there, Lee, and you beat me to the punch once again. The, oh, fa- the, f- the fast mind of a PhD. <sighs> expectations. Um, expectations, I think, is huge here because I think there are extremely different expectations uh, between companies that do this big swarm self-organizing thing and expectations for companies where you have some sort of a hierarchy. Along with these expectations, I think there's also a key, another key word, incentive, right? What's your incentive for this behavior? These companies must incentivize people differently than hierarchical companies, right? I have to imagine that they do. I can't imagine how they would operate otherwise. So I'm, I'm not sure I, I go along with this one because I mean, at least for me personally, and I, and that's the only thing I have to go on. So I assume that other developers that are, um, that are around me have the same thing. For the most part, if I'm working on a project that I, that I like, and I think the software is good and I enjoy doing that for the sake of doing it. Um, and so you don't really have to incentivize me to work. I'm, I would be coding something, um, even if you weren't paying me, um, I wouldn't necessarily coding your stuff if you weren't paying me, but, uh, uh, but I'd be coding something. And so if you put me in a, in a, in a big room and said, here's all the people you can work with and here's the, the, the great software you get to work on. And, um, you know, we'll pay you regular what, you know, what, what, uh, everybody else is getting, um, go for it. You know, to me, that would be enough incentive. I'm enjoying I, what I'm doing. The incentive, the incentive is the freedom. The, the right, freedom I wanted to, to say that. Well, that's why I already typed it on the show title suggestion. <laughs> is, is that, that is the incentive. That is what they're giving them as their incentive. Um, I don't know if it still works this way. At one point in GitHub, everyone there made the exact same amount of money it, that took it off the table. So you're not incentivizing by money. You're incentivizing with freedom. The ability for you to choose the direction of the software, the direction of the future, and the direction of what you yourself can accomplish. I think that says it all. And, and I'm mad at Amos because I wanted to say those things. Uh, I love you, John. Guys, we could go on for probably another hour on this topic, but we're, we are out of time. Ooh, and I've got to pee. Do you guys have any? <laughs> I could have done without that. <laughs> Do you guys have any parting words on the topic? No, I think Amos's closing was perfect. Yeah, I can't do any better than that. Oh, thank you. Let's go to the picks, to the picks, to the picks, picks, picks. Amos, what are your picks tonight, man? Well, I was going to have three, but as we talked about earlier, uh, having lots and lots of picks gets to be uh, a pain, so I'm going to save one for later. It gets to be Uh, too big. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Too many picks. Seven plus or minus two. <laughs> um, so I'm only going to have two tonight. Uh, one is screen flow, which I know earlier you said that you had thought you'd pick. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, a, it's a great utility for doing uh, screen capture or uh, screencasts from the Mac. Very editable, nice interface, simple to use, uh, but yet really powerful. Uh, I, I use it uh, to. Um, show things to the team. It's it's really good communication tool for that. 
and uh, one day hopefully I'll, I'll publish some screencasts online and use it for something other than just communicating to my team. And then the other one it, I think goes with tonight talking about big teams and communicating. There's a Thoughtbot blog post called Don't Talk to Just Me. And uh, they, they talk about having um, communication that is um, able to be seen uh, what is asynchronous communication, but making it so that everybody can see it. So if you have a chat room system where everybody can read what's going on, you, you don't have private rooms. You have a couple of um, virtual meeting rooms set up just like you would have a meeting room at your office. And if people want to have a private conversation, not in the main room, they go into those rooms. But those rooms are still available to the public so other people can come in later and read what your conversation was about. Uh, just keeps the communication lines open and make sure that there's no no uh, secret features going in. Good picks, Amos. I wanted to tell you that ScreenFlow, I'm again jealous because I wanted to use that as a pick and I should have done it sooner. But I actually use this very similarly to, I think, the way you did. I used it to... Uh, create some information that I wanted to share with my theoretical, hypothetical, very large team and uh, shared it out with them that way so that they could all get a very consistent message around something. Good tool for that. All right, I'll go ahead and do my pick. I just have one. I like to do just one pick. My pick is a book. It's actually a book that Lee and I and some other people did a book club on way back when, a long time ago, and it's called Growing Object-Oriented Software Guided by Tests. I didn't write down the author's names, but it kind of dovetails with some stuff that we talked about in a past episode on Walking Skeleton. So uh, that that conversation around Walking Skeleton made me think of this book, so I wanted to uh, make it as my pick tonight. That's my pick. Lee, what do you got? So I've got two. One is the one that I mentioned before, which is I found the the book. It is Quiet, The Power of Introverts by Susan Cain. Uh, So by all means, check that out. It's a great little book about uh, uh, which a lot of us will probably uh, identify with. Um, The other one is really a blog. Um, There's a guy, I'm not sure of his his full name. Uh, His blog is at mkyong, uh, mkyong.com. And I, I have to say, in the last uh, year, practically every other time I would do a search on Google for somebody that had, that had come across the particular problem I was, I was hitting, I, he had the answer. Um, he was, he's a walking um, stack overflow all by himself. Um, so I just wanted to, uh, to use him as a pick because he's amazing. So what I heard you say was that his his blog is way better than Amos's blog. Oh, way way better. better <laughs> yeah, than I'm sure it looks prettier. <laughs> it's got better words too. I'll bet. Probably. Mine's usually full of toilet humor. Of course, we expect nothing but the best. Good picks, Lee. Hey guys, keep the conversation going with us. We want you to come out and join our private community on Google Plus. It's the This Agile Life private community on Google+. You can interact with us and the, the us and other past hosts of the show. Help us decide on future topics and engage in all of, our, all of this lighthearted tomfoolery that we are always up to on the show. You can very simply find, uh, find and join the private community by going to our website, thisagilelife.com, and clicking 
join the community link in the menu bar. And John listed that if you run into Amos, he'll give you a hug if you join the community. That's right. Amos will or John will? Amos. Okay. Amos will give you a hug. And I'm sure he will back that up. I will. That's awesome. My wife was upset that you didn't ask her permission before posting that I would give random people hugs. <laughs> what do I need her permission for? It's you giving the hug. I, I think I think she uh she pictures different listeners than I do. I see. <laughs> right. Female listeners. Yes. If you're a female listener, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We would. We'd we'd love to also have guests host. So if any of you would like to be on this Agile Life, please let us know. I'm actually working on a female guest host, Amos, and I'll tell you more about that someday soon. All right, everybody. Retrospective? No. Oh, yes. Yes and no. There's two female hosts that I'm working on. Yay! All right. uh, Why don't we tell everybody where they can find out more about us? Amos, where can folks find out more about you? You can find me on Twitter and GitHub at AdCron or my ugly blog, Dirty Information, just keeping it dirty. Lee, where can po- folks find you on the internet? I'm at, at Agile Atheist on Twitter and agileatheist.blogspot.com for my blog. Very and good. You can find us all on our new Google group community. That's right. You can find me at my blog, johnsextro.com, and you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at JC Sextro. Check out the website once again, thisagilelife.com, to find the show notes and the link to join our private community on Google+. Thanks for listening, and keep living this agile life. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. 